Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this week's episode, Cherie Langenstein interviews third-year PhD student Nicholas Gomez about his experience teaching writing as a first-generation college student. Hello, I'm Cherie Langenstein, a third-year PhD student in writing and composition here at SLU. And our guest today is Nicholas Gomez, who is also a third-year graduate student at St. Louis University. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Nice having me. I'm so glad you're here with us today. So my understanding is that you were the first in your family to graduate from college, and now here you are getting a PhD. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, you know, it's been a fairly circuitous path, and, you know, I, it was sort of a stop and start process for me in terms of finishing even my bachelor's degree, but once I did get the opportunity to uh, to to finish the bachelor's between 23 and 26 years old, I just knew that I was going to keep going. Um, so there was some continuity once I decided I was going to finish. And, uh, you know, I realized that first generation is sort of a, it seems like a very contestable category, you know. Um, there's a lot of ways in which people can kind of uh, undermine it in different ways and say, oh, well, well, how it depends on how we're defining first generation, or it depends on, uh, you know, if one parent went to college and one didn't, would it be different? You know, what does it really mean? And I get that. I totally get that. I also think, though, that, that there are larger numbers of first generation college students than are generally acknowledged. And, uh, and so I think it's important to acknowledge the category because it also cuts across so many identities. And so I went to a school called UTEP, the University of Texas at El Paso, which is 85% Hispanic. It straddles the Mexican border, the U.S.-Mexico border. And so you walk out of a classroom and uh, depending on, on, on which building you can see uh, the border and you can see Mexico and Juarez, Mexico, um, sort of sprawled out before you. So, um, there's people who are crossing the border, uh, just to go to school, um, to finish their degrees. Um, our campus has an agreement with governor of Chihuahua to, uh, send students to UTEP to finish their degrees. And so students, uh, go through any number of obstacles to, um, finish their degree at a place like UTEP. I wasn't coming across the border from Mexico, um, but I was a commuter student. I live closer to the New Mexico border uh, because El Paso sort of smashed in between the New Mexico and Mexico border. But uh, but there's a lot of people who go through the whole stop and start process, you know, get get a few credits here, get a chunk of credits there, and sort of keep going as you go, as you move along. So interesting. So what was your uh, undergraduate major? My undergraduate major was English and American literature. I minored in philosophy and, um, and I had a lot of 
really dedicated uh, professors who knew what uh, sort of demographic they were teaching. Many teachers would start classes off asking, okay, so how many first generation college students are there in this class? And so they could get a sort of feel for how they would approach it. And so there's this, uh, there's this way in which, you know, even pedagogies are based on how many first generation college students they had in their classes. But I don't know if it was exclusive to the English and American literature department, but yeah, I majored in that and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm very happy I did. You mentioned kind of a start and stop process when you were an undergrad. Uh, what, were, what were some of the impediments to um, keep you from you know, graduating quickly or, or, or why did you kind of engage in that start and stop process? Oh, that's a, where to begin on that one, Cherie? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it varies, you know, I, I, I don't speak on behalf of, of everybody in, in that particular region, um, but a lot of it, uh, a lot of it is, is, is lack of structural support, lack of uh, access to cultural resources, I mean, a lot of students who go to a school like UTEP are working at the same time, and sometimes the demands of that job, depending on on the kind of job it is, might hold someone back from being able to go full-time. And if you're not going full-time, then you can't get financial aid, things like that. Um, for me, uh, it was something like the, the need to, to make money. You know, I mean, my family is working class, so it was tough to just sort of... To, to do school for its own sake at any point. And, and I also had a lot to work on, you know. I wasn't in any position for a long time to even apply for scholarships um, in a very literal way. Uh, I had a lot of holes to, uh, uh, a lot of gaps to fill in terms of my own preparedness. And so it was just, there was, it was a long time going back and forth, a very, like I said, a very um, sort of gather momentum in one direction uh, by taking this number of credits or taking these kinds of courses and then you pull back for a little while and then you go again and um, that might mean working a, a job or various jobs in between making these little fits of progress. Um, so for me it was more job related and uh, I probably have a list of about literally about 10 to 11 odd jobs that I carried out in, in between which uh, which has been uh, a lot of fun, um, from uh, from Dunkin' Donuts to McDonald's to uh, to the YMCA, which itself was, you know, there's a way in which having those jobs kind of presents its own continuity with my education. You know, when I think back about making it to my bachelor's degree at 26, I really feel like those jobs were equally part of my education in terms of reinforcing what I appreciated about academia and what I wouldn't want to go back to in terms of, of having the kinds of jobs that I had. That is, that's so interesting. And I, I'm sitting here nodding my head because I really do understand what you're talking about. Um, I, I myself did not graduate from high school. Uh, I have a, a GED and I um, had kind of a similar experience in college, I came from a middle-class family, but still mm -hmm. I had, uh, I, you know, had to stop on occasion and, and go work and, uh, and then, you know, go back to college. So um, 
how do you think that really kind of affected your um, drive to go to graduate school then? You know, once you, once you finally, you know, had that degree, um, what, uh, how did your, the time that it took you to achieve that degree, to earn that degree, affect your decision to um, go to graduate school? Yeah, uh, well, I think by the time I did get funding to go, because I finally did win a grant to, to finish out my, my bachelor's at UTEP. And when I, when I finally did that, I think the motives were, were one, that I had already known what it was like to live a certain kind of life in which it feels like you're running on a treadmill. Um, not that graduate school doesn't feel that way, but you're working towards a very concrete end in graduate school. But, but in which you're just sort of at these sort of entry level, um, sometimes, uh, you know, in terms of the hours, very demanding uh, minimum wage jobs. And so not only that, but the location, El Paso itself is sort of, it's a beautiful place, but it's sort of culturally marginalized. It's very on the outskirts culturally and geographically. And so there's always been this sense in which I would just kind of, once I had the opportunity, I would kick the door down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I would go for the jugular. And the PhD was the was the equivalent of just sort of saying, okay, I know what it feels like to sort of uh, kind of struggle to get a foothold on something. Now that I have, it's all the way, you know. Um, there's no, uh, there's going to be no in between here. Not only that, but... Um, but while I was, you know, sort of in that place in which it was sort of a stop and start process for school, um, I was reading, you know, that's all I was doing. So I, I, I took the hint and I tried to know myself the best I could. And uh, I decided that, you know, I, I might as well use this insight <laughs> in how I'm spending all my spare time, which was reading, and do something with that. Um, and so that, that was essentially the motive for sort of going for, for the whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so El Paso and St. Louis are not close by one another <laughs> at all. So how did you uh, come here to St. Louis um, from El Paso? What made you choose SLU? So... I was looking everywhere. I cast a very wide net and I was going to go uh, visit Wash U at first because they had a comparative literature program that I was interested in. But then I met at a ceremony, I met the president of UTEP who herself graduated from SLU, um, Diana Natalicio. She graduated from SLU uh, with her bachelor's degree in Spanish. and uh, and. I met her there and I told her I'm going to St. Louis because I, I knew she was from there. She had mentioned it very often. And, uh, and I said, do you suggest any landmarks or anything like that? Um, and she asked me how I was going and I said, okay, I'm going to visit Washington and all that. And she said, well, there's, there's a place called SLU down the street and it's, <laughs> and it's a great place. So with a little bit of embarrassment, I said, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely look into, I'll look into SLU. Um, I did, I ended up visiting SLU and there was no looking back after that. I met some 
excellent, brilliant people before I, I, I actually applied. And, um, and by the time I did apply, I knew that I would, if, if I was accepted at SLU, it would be a no-brainer. It was one of, the, one of the few places I had chosen to visit at that point. I mean, I had met Joan Hart Hassler, Ruth Evans, Jennifer Rust at that point. I joined the Latin group and translated a little bit of Latin with them. Uh, it was just uh, it was just a no-brainer um, at that point. The people sold me easily, and and it continues to be that way. So, you mentioned translating Latin, and we're gonna mm-hmm. get into some of your 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 areas of study. But I, I was wondering, did in your family of origin, what was the primary language spoken in your household when you were growing up? Well, was it English? Yeah, it, it was English. Um, okay. It was English, but I mean, a lot of my family speaks Spanish, um, of course, um, on both sides. And so you will find yourself speaking it to extended family, inevitably. But in my own household, no, it was very, very English centric. My dad seems to love English a lot. So he, um, that's probably where it really starts. You know, he, he used to throw words out there that I didn't understand the meaning of. So it was actually a very bizarre experience to be on the border, but to have someone who clearly relished English and speaking it as much as my dad did. But yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So your background is in um, literature and um, some writing, you said. So uh, as a member of your cohort, I happen to know that you are planning to take the rhetoric comprehensive exams. Um, So why writing and rhetoric and and why in particular classical rhetoric right Uh, well i have i have various motives some more selfish some less selfish Uh, (laughs) some of the some of the uh initial motives were my interest in the classical languages but also the fact that um, rhetorical studies kind of kind of allows a, a generalist approach to research. Um, you can run with it, you know. There's uh, and you can find a way to justify studying it. Uh, on the other hand, in terms of the classics, it's the cl- the ancient languages themselves, Greek, Latin, especially, are very rhetorical themselves, and so just translating those languages. Um, you have to make rhetorical decisions constantly. Interpreting the languages, you have to make rhetorical decisions on how you're going to view a particular word, how you're going to justify translating it. Not to mention that a lot of the literature itself is steeped in reflections on rhetoric. It's usefulness in every way. And as, as we can see with people like Deborah Hawhey or, or Eric Havelock, scholars who are sort of very steeped in their research on the classical tradition. The classics just offer for rhetoric an endless well in terms of exploration about rhetoric and about adapting some of these ancient concepts for contemporary rhetoric. Um, So it's mainly on those two levels that I'm interested in rhetoric and in classical rhetoric in particular. Wow. So... Well, as part of your graduate assistantship, I know you've taught writing, you've taught literature. Mm-hmm. Um, how has being, you know, a first-generation college graduate had an influence on the way that you uh, 
teach your classes and that you will now act as a, an instructor and eventually, you know, a professor. Um, what kind of an influence does that have? Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's mainly in my, in momentary approaches to my class, right? In those, in, improvisationally, it's had more of an effect than in any other category. You, I mean, I, I, everybody sets up the sort of uh, apparatus that they approach a class with. You have your syllabus, you have your assignments, you have the way that you're going to approach your students. Um, and you sort of have a philosophy that you develop over time. Um, I think uh, being a first generation college student and now a uh, teacher in higher education, it's more, it more influences my momentary decision making, you know. For instance, I could be in class uh, interacting with my students on any particular subject, but the way that I go about it, the way I explain it, um, the way I interact with them uh, in every moment is sort of informed by how I would interact with someone who isn't necessarily too comfortable. And so I go out of my way to make sure that students are comfortable in the classroom, whether that's sort of making myself vulnerable. I remember one of the podcasts from last semester in which Catherine Polizzi and, um, and Natalie Whitaker talked about making yourself vulnerable, that more of us need to do that. I think the vulnerability, uh, you know, showing that um, is important. Um, hearing students, encouraging them to speak to you about about various things with limits, of course. Um, uh, the other thing I think that is sort of double-sided is the way I approach students' performance itself. So I I'm extra, you know, flexible with deadlines and stuff. But there's also this other side in which for for things that I think could be done uh, fairly easily or without too much um, uh, difficulty. Uh, you know, I think about students who are crossing the border just to finish an education, just to finish a, their, their bachelor's degree, which for a lot of people is a very basic milestone. And for them, uh, you know, uh, for people who are crossing the border to finish a, an education, this is a, this is a major monumental milestone. So I, I keep that in mind and sort of let it orient me uh, to how I'll treat the things that my students are, are, I think my students should be able to do easily, but also because of that, uh, I keep as flexible deadlines as I possibly can. Interesting. It, it, it's, I think that's really fascinating. You mentioned um, you know, being vulnerable and mm -hmm. how Natalie and Catherine had talked about um, being vulnerable. Uh, and it occurred to me when you said that, that you know, what we're asking of our students when they are writing and, you know, expressing their, their being through mm. their writing, that they're making themselves vulnerable to us. And the, and the best writing is writing that is vulnerable, that, that kind of um, fully expresses, you know, the, that emotion, that the thoughts, uh, the excitement, the, the, the research, you know, question that really gets you going or the personal narrative that really gets you going. Um, so do you think that uh, because of your 
vulnerability to your students so that they're then more willing to be vulnerable, you know, with you through their writing? I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so. Uh, you never really know, do you? I mean, they give you indications on how effective you might have been, uh, but you never, you, you never really know because there's always something to mold over. There's always, I mean, that might be my perfectionism speaking to me, but uh, but I, I think um, I think I can see evidence of of, of its effectiveness at least, uh, you know, in a basic way, in the way that they're writing. I'll, I'll, you know, one of my students told me about, you know, how he came to SLU to play soccer and he just went through a swathe of injuries and he took my class themed on faith and doubt because he wanted some answers. And so whether he got those answers or not is another question, but the fact that he was willing to share that with me, and I have other examples of that. I hope that I'm fostering more of that. I mean, I, I hope that all of them are feeling like they can say things like that to me and to sort of be open, um, to allow moments um, of vulnerability to happen. And, and uh, yeah, as I said, I, I hope that I'm fostering that. Um, you know, the Disoy Logoi, which is the, the major assignment in, in our 1900 classes, um, can tend to be a detached assignment, but the way that I try to try to include at least an element of vulnerability, an element of um, of of you know uh, personalizing the assignment, is to kind of model that myself in the way that we read our assignments, um, in the way we examine our assignments, not to be too scientifically detached. You know, if something is. If, if something bothers you, mention why it bothers you. If you think it's spot on, why is it spot on? You know, don't hold back on, on, on giving sort of um, personal justifications of involved reasons for, for why you feel the way you feel about a, a piece of, of literature or a text. Yeah. The, you know, when, when COVID came last spring and we all um, kind of dispersed from our central location at the university um, and began teaching online. Um, I, I personally did a lot of research on, you know, you know, teaching online and things like that. And one of the things that kept coming up in the research was how important it was for um, instructors to have empathy for their students. Um, and you mentioned kind of, you know, flexible deadlines and, and that vulnerability. Um, how do you think, you know, empathy how do you think your background um, uh, and you know your personal journey to get to where you are now? How does that play a factor in the empathy that you have for your students, both in a typical school year and uh, in you know in our, our kind of COVID-driven classes that we have right now? Ooh, it's been uh, that's been a heck of a factor because. For all of the things that I lack and continue to lack as a teacher, one of the things that I can concretely say is that I've been able to at least have a very flexible imagination uh, about what they could be going through. And of course, that's just been accelerated with COVID and, and everything, all the challenges that that has brought in terms of the, the lack of interaction or the seeming lack of interaction. 
uh, in-person interaction. Um, it's been it's been a fairly smooth process for for me uh, because I I was around people during my my undergraduate years who were already going through some major obstacles to finish um, their degree pretty much across the board. So I know what it's like to be in a position where you got to overcome things just to just to tune into class or just to finish an assignment. Um, I know what it's like to kind of be in a place where every completing something is a milestone. And I think that's where students are now, you know, tuning into a class, finishing the class, finishing an assignment feels like a milestone now. And everybody is sort of more intentional about how they go about what they do and how they get the most out of their education. Um, and so it is, I, it's definitely been an expansion of, of empathy, but it's been a fairly easy one uh, for me. I mean, I know that they're going through things. At the same time, I do expect a certain level of toughness um, from them because of what I've, you know, what I've seen people go through. I expect them to be able to to sort of display a certain amount of toughness in uh, in meeting standards. Uh, Gotcha. Like a resilience kind of? Yes. Yeah. I, I do expect that. I think that's, that's important because being able to appreciate what you've accomplished hinges on a certain level of, of resilience. Um, yeah. Interesting. So you're a scholar now, right? <laughs> the, the guy from, from UTEP, um, who didn't necessarily go straight through college because you needed to survive, yeah. um, did survive and survive well. And now you're at St. Louis University. You're um, at least halfway through your PhD program. You're, you're officially a scholar. Um, do you ever <laughs> feel though, uh, like it's not real? Do you ever, Dr. Corsi, um, who is the uh, coordinator of the Compass Lab, recorded a podcast not too long ago where she talked about imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and I know, uh, I personally feel that quite a bit. Like, this is, you know, someone's going to pinch me and I'm going to wake up and, you know, and they're going to recognize that I'm, I'm, I'm just a fake. <laughs> this, you know, that I didn't really belong here. I'm just really good at talking a good game and mm -hmm. I, I worked my way in. Do you mm. ever feel that way too? That you're oh. not really a scholar, that you, that you're you're kind of in a you're you're kind of faking it till you make it. <laughs> I mean, uh, of course, uh, of course, yeah. I, I mean, there's a there, there's a way there's a way in which I'll, I'll I'll never feel otherwise. You know, technically I'm a junior scholar. That's what we are, right? We're junior scholars right now until we get okay. our PhD. But uh, I mean, no. I mean, I think in terms of the work we do, I think it. There is a way in which we can finally say, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a scholar, but there's also, as you mentioned, Cherie, this, this way in which it, it kind of will never, you'll never be able to just, like, embrace the role, you know, 100%. It's, it's difficult to kind of envision that. I think, uh, I think that's a good thing, I mean, from my perspective, to kind of stay rooted in um, a, kind of, uh, a kind of working class approach um, an identity, um, because, uh, you know, I think it, it allows, I mean, at least for me, it allows me to appreciate, um, 
where uh, I'm at right now in a way that I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it. Otherwise, I have something to compare this to. You know, there's a lot of talk about about the struggle of graduate school, and it's no doubt a struggle because of everything that it presents. But when you have something to compare it to um, very concretely, you know, you can acknowledge the challenges of it, but that's balanced out um, by knowing very concretely what an opportunity it presents, what a, what a major opportunity it presents. So there's this, at least this sort of balance going on um, that, yeah, allows me to kind of say, I, I'm a scholar now, but <laughs> I'm a scholar who uh, at one point thought that Dunkin' Donuts might be, might be, uh, that might be it <laughs> for quite a while. So that's a good thing. I think that's a good balance um, for me. Good. So in my own personal experience, um, I would not be a junior scholar here at SLU uh -huh. if it hadn't been for um, instructors and professors who gave me second and third and fourth chances, if it hadn't been for um, community colleges and um, uh, you know, people having faith in me that I could, um, despite some of the hardships I had gone through, kind of achieve something and, and accomplish something. Um, and that has influenced, you know, what, where I envision myself once I graduate from SLU. So my question for you is, how has your experience influenced what you uh, plan to do after you graduate from SLU and, and where do you see yourself? Um, once you do graduate and are a senior scholar or a full scholar um, mm. after you have that PhD in hand. So I've always imagined myself going back to UTEP or a place like it. And there's plenty of places like it. Uh, for example, two-year colleges, community colleges. I think I, but yeah, I mean, I just love... <laughs> I love making these personal connections with 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 students who are in this in this deeply transformative phase. So in general, I just want to continue that work in one way or another, just to be around these these students who are who are in such in flux. You know, it's such an opportunity to work with people, uh, to work with students at a stage in higher education, and particularly um, particularly. Uh, undergraduates in which, you know, there, there's just a lot of opportunity to, to tap into the dynamism going on um, through their through their sense of transformation. You know, some things are so unsettled. I like that um, in general. But if um, if at all possible, at some point, I could end up at a place where I'm working with students who um, who are first generation or otherwise experience obstacles to attaining their uh, educational goals, whatever those are. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking closely at being able to do that at some point, even if it's not immediately after our graduation. So what advice then would you give to other students who are the first in their families to go to college um, and, and maybe even especially graduate students who are teaching 
Um, what kind of words of wisdom can you pass on to them? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I know that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, but I think I think it would be safe to say to graduate students who are first generation that whatever you were doing that got you into graduate school, the combination of resilience and focus, humor, um, self-forgiveness, whatever that combination is, keep that. Don't abandon it just because you've reached another level. Tap into that. But also know that you're going to have to transform that. You're going to have to make some compromises along the way. You won't necessarily be able to translate that paradigm of resilience totally um, unchanged. You'll have, to, you'll have to adapt it to a very new situation. And know your resources on a more practical level. Know, know what's on the campus where you're going to be pursuing your graduate degree. Get to know people. Get to know your colleagues. That's going to be incredibly important. And, uh, and when it comes to teaching, just, just know that, that you belong there. Just tell yourself, repeat that to yourself, that you belong there. Forgive yourself, I belong. Forgive myself, I belong. Yeah. Uh, well, Nick, I am so thankful that you took the time to uh, come on the podcast today and, and share your really incredible and fascinating uh, story. Um, and uh, I, I, I just truly thank you for being here uh, with us today. Well, thank you, Cherie. It was a pleasure. And I thank all of our listeners for joining us as well. Please join us again next week for another episode of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, the podcast of the writing program at St. Louis University. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu.